Let's Go Green, sponsored by Airgrid, managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future. Check out airgrid.ie for more. And welcome to this week's episode of Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. Well, each and every week we try and look at environmental issues from, you know, the traditional and the not so traditional angles. A little bit later on, on this week's episodes, we're going to be speaking to a Port Leash farmer who's doing things, well, very differently from traditional farming practices and is building a sustainable career off the back of it. And after that, we'll be speaking with a lady from County Monaghan who's using sustainable and recycled fabrics to make the most beautiful creations. But first things first, we have a new report out which shows that unfortunately here in Ireland, scientifically now, our weather patterns are showing the effects of climate change. And here in the Midlands, we are not immune to it, unfortunately. I'm joined on the line by Professor Connor Murphy. And Professor Connor is from ICRIS, which is the research centre who specialises in in looking at these issues. Uh, Professor Murphy, you're very welcome to Let's Go Green. Thank you very much for having me. Now, yourself and your colleagues, you've put together this new report, which was released in the last couple of days, looking Mm -hmm. at what we now know to be the effects of climate change in our weather patterns. For listeners who haven't read the report, just take us through, in a a nutshell, what have you found? Uh, Indeed. So we have really long records of rainfall and temperature in Ireland. Um, For example, many of your listeners might be familiar with Barcastle um, and they extend way back into the 1800s and lots of studies in recent years have been looking at how things like rainfall have been increasing in winter or temperatures have been changing over time but none of those previous pieces of work have really tried to attribute the changes that we're seeing to climate change so that's what this piece of research was really looking at can we attribute the changes we're seeing to increases in greenhouse gas emissions at a a global scale. And the answer that we've come up with is a resounding yes. Um, And in particular, if if you look at temperature changes uh, across Ireland, we've been increasing uh, annual temperatures at about 0.88 degrees Celsius for every one degree warming at a global scale. Um, When you think of climate change and we talk about global mean temperature, that doesn't really mean much to people. Uh, Nobody experiences global temperature, so it's really important to to localise that. So across Ireland, we're increasing annual temperatures at about 0.88 degrees per degree warming globally. But when you come to the Midlands and East, we're actually warming at a rate that exceeds that, about 1.14 degrees Celsius per increase in global warming. That is very worrying. It is. And if you were living in the 1850s, for example, the temperature change that you're seeing would be completely unfamiliar to you. It's a a new climate, essentially, for many parts of Ireland. Now, Um, and I I, I like the way you explained it there, Connor, because like... It's one thing, it's very important for the scientific research to, to take place. But if we're not able to make that relatable to the, to, to those of us who are not scientists, to the general public, then there's very little that we as the public can do about this. We, we can't, if we don't understand the problem, it's very, it's unlikely that we'll take action. And like, mm-hmm. 
anecdotally, like I've heard strange things in the last couple of years, like in the last couple of weeks where, you know, in the middle of October, people are complaining of hay fever. I know my own garden at home. The dahlias are in mm-hmm. bloom. It's the middle of October. That's not normal. Like, why... Why is it that we're seeing these changes in the Midlands? So, like, you're saying that the effects are, are greater in the Midlands and the East. D- do we know why? Um, really, part of that is down to, to our, our climate as it exists. So we, we tend to have uh, temperatures that are a little bit warmer in the East and Midlands and, and rainfall tends to be wetter in the West and a bit drier in the East and the Southeast. So that that kind of characteristic will change will we'll keep sorry will remain the same with climate change but um, we will see differences in temperature changes uh, rainfall changes so part of it is is just our climate and then on top of that is uh, the, the greenhouse gas contribution the climate change contribution from human activities um, and it's it's interesting you mentioned you know changes in hay fever and things we also see changing growing season length uh, and with warmer conditions, and we can see that extending uh, longer in the year. Um, and of course, that increases the likelihood of allergens and changes in, in those kind of things can affect people on a day-to-day basis. So we're seeing these changes in different ways. It's not just the temperature we feel, but like that, seeing later um, uh, plants appearing later in the year than you might expect, or hay fever continuing longer in the year than you might expect. And it's important to think about how we relate those to climate change. And can we, like, I know on a global level, there's a lot of, you know, maybe not enough, but there is work underway to try and mitigate against that. But on a local level, you know, mm. what should we be looking to do at, the, at this moment in time? You now have the data to back up what yeah. we may what may have been suspected for a long time. You would hope then that that therefore would encourage substantial action. Yeah, you would hope so indeed. I mean, when you talk about climate action, uh, in the public imagination is you know, greenhouse gas reductions and cleaner energy and those kinds of things. But this research is showing us that the climate change signal is evident in Ireland. We see it in temperature, in rainfall extremes as well in particular. And we see the kinds of flooding that's been happening across the country, and particularly in Cork in the last number of days. So that tells us we need to think about how we adapt to climate change as well. There are two parts of the policy approach, I guess, um, from mitigation and reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but also adaptation. And adaptation hasn't really gotten the the coverage that we need to give us in terms of how do we make our our livelihood, our practices, our critical infrastructures, the things we rely upon more resilient or better able to withstand these changing extremes that are happening. And that's what I I hope personally that this research um, gives rise to more discussion about okay, climate change is happening here. We see it in extreme rainfall events. We see temperatures changing. What do we need to do to make ourselves more resilient and more robust to the changes that we're experiencing? So we don't get images like we are from Cork or from in the Midlands. You'll be well used to, to flooding in the Shannon, for example. How do we do better at managing those kinds of extreme events? Does that mean that even on an individual level that we need to be more prepared for events that may not have been normal in our locality? Like like if we take the flooding as an example, mm-hmm. where I grew up is not considered a floodplain, but do I maybe need to know what to do in case that were to change? Like what kind of practical advice can we do as individuals? 
It certainly, I mean, in terms of, of thinking about our livelihoods, in terms of, for example, with with farming, for example, is thinking about okay, the kind of stocks you might have in store for, for animal feed or timing of, of spreading slurry or nutrients on the land or, you know, thinking about how all of these practices may be um, sensitive to rainfall patterns, those kind of things. But also... Um, with changes in rainfall intensity, a common cause of flooding is uh, from runoff over the surface. So even if you're not on the banks of a river, uh, for example, increased rainfall intensity can result in increased runoff over land, causing pooling of water and, and local scale or spot flooding, as it's sometimes called. So even thinking about how individual households might be uh, exposed or vulnerable to those kinds of extreme events. You may not have flooded by a river before or from groundwater before, uh, but these kind of changing patterns increase the risk, I guess, of um, of experiencing those kind of extreme events. Okay, so can we now use the information that yourself and your colleagues at Icarus in Maynooth have gathered? Can that help us make those plans for the future going forward? It can, certainly. I mean, we have these long records, um, the work of many people's lifetimes in collating them. We've quality assured them. We've shown that the climate change signal is evident in them. So it's now about you know, how we use that information going forward because we're able to scale local changes to what's happening globally. If we see increases of two degrees, three degrees globally, we can now understand what that means at a local scale. So it's important that people are on to their local representatives, making sure that this issue is is on the, the policy agenda, both at a local scale, regionally and nationally, to make sure that we're thinking about adaptation, that climate responses. It's really important to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but it's also important to make sure that we're resilient and, and thinking about adaptation to these extremes. And and trying to extend out the what we might call the solution space from land use management, not just engineering approaches like flood defences, but land use management, uh, asking for early warning systems for extreme events, those kinds of things. Um, and being involved in you know, how we, we like to see our local uh, communities, our local areas develop into the future and make sure that climate change is part of that discussion. What are those questions that we should be asking of our, those in, in local authorities, of, of politicians? Like, you know, we've got, we've got the local elections coming up next summer and mm-hmm. it's all very well and good, you and I, who are used to speaking to uh, political leaders and, you know, who are comfortable having these kinds of conversations. But if it is something that you're concerned about and you have somebody knocking on the front door, like, you know, what, what questions would you like to see people ask? Um, I, I would like the conversation to start happening in terms of what our, uh, our representatives' understanding of climate change, where they see climate change being important in, in local and community development, understanding what the key risks and concerns are for people, um, different different livelihoods that people rely upon are differently sensitive. So having that conversation and, and making sure that there are opportunities for investment, whether it's it's in flood defences or land management or how people can have a voice in in local scale decision making that's crucial if we have if we are to have a just transition listeners might be familiar when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions but we also need to think about fairness and and adaptation and, and how we respond to the risks 
And that starts with having a voice in decision making. And it starts with making sure that local representatives are aware of these issues and are thinking about these issues because climate change impacts will be most damaging and most expensive if we deal with them in a reactive way. Mm. An extreme event happens and afterwards there's knee-jerk reactions and sometimes maybe bad decisions. We need to think about you know, planning for the future and, and getting people's voices and perspectives in line and on the table uh, to make sure that we can, we can plan in advance. And at the end of the day, if we as members of the public don't actually get involved, then yeah. you're, you're hoping against hope that someone will think that we're interested in it. And, and that's not always the case. But yeah. I mean, Connor, I, I would very much agree with that, because when we think of climate change, historically, we think of it as something that's out there somewhere mm-hmm. else or somewhere in the future. But these results that we're showing, climate change is happening now. It's here. We can start to see the signal emerge in Ireland. So we have to start these conversations. Well, Professor Connor Murphy, thank you so much for joining us on Let's Go Green. If you want to um, look up that report, Connor, I'm sure that listeners, if you Google Icarus, you you will find yeah. reports on on what you've discovered. Um, so, thank you very much for the work that you do and for speaking to us here on Let's Go Green. Thanks for your interest. We'll be back after the break, speaking to an awfully man who's become a leash farmer who's doing things a little bit differently. Let's Go Green, sponsored by Airgrid, managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future. Check out airgrid.ie for more. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. Now, on Friday morning's Midlands Today, I spoke with awfully native but leash farmer Brendan Guinan about his agroforestry farm, Fear Via. Did I pronounce it correctly? Yes, how are you, Ashley? <laughs> My old Irish teacher might be listening and I'm getting, I'm terribly bad at the old Irish pronunciations these days. I'm well out of practice. So, Brendan, tell me first things first, because I mentioned this before the 11 o'clock news. Explain to me what is agroforestry? Yes, well, agroforestry is basically farming through trees where you use the trees to enhance the environment for whether it's your animals or crops that you've um, grown. So it's um, it's a practice that's been done for 10,000 years. Mm-hmm. So I call agroforestry conventional farming um, because it has been, it's how farming was done for 10,000 years without degrading the environment or without uh, nutrients run off. Um, so the trees are actually an integral part of the whole system. And you are, to the best of your knowledge, you're the only person farming in this way at this scale in Ireland. There is some farms using small amounts of the farm in agroforestry or, or testing it out. And there is an agroforestry scheme that has been set up a couple of years ago where you can plant trees now. Um, but the whole point of trees is to slowly grown. Our farm our trees are 35, 40 years old. Um, we've got a mix of deciduous and pine trees. And um, our total farm is not just farming through trees, but 100% chemical free as well. So take me through that because you had a, you had a whole other life before this. You were a truck driver, but you grew up on what might be considered a traditional farm in County Offaly. Why go down this particular path? Yeah, um, I did. I, uh, I, I was born and raised in a dairy farm. Um, now, it was very well ran, but there wasn't an income for two of us on the farm when I got married. So that was the reason I had to kind of look elsewhere to try and um, earn an income. My wife's a full-time mother, so I needed an income that would provide for 
the whole family as well. Mm-hmm. So that's why I had to go out and actually um, uh, start a business, you know. Um, and one that became very successful. Yes. But it came at a cost. It did. It did, yeah. Uh, crazy hours, um, a lot of travelling. Um, it just wasn't something I could see leaving a legacy behind. So okay. um, I, I changed tack totally when, um, and I bought this um, forest just outside Port Leash um, and I wanted to design a system that was easy going that was uh, more fulfilling that was uh, actually I wanted to try and see could farming actually help the environment rather than degrade the environment it, was it easy to start off given that you had some like you'd grown up with farming practices so you had some basic knowledge or like how do you go about establishing something like this when you are effectively one of the first doing it? Yeah well I'm one of the first in Ireland alright but there is regenerative farming done in Europe and in America um, so I got to know some of the farmers out there um, in the meantime as well I had a couple of acres at home and I grew all my own food um, for our kids and, and for ourselves for the previous 15 years as well. So we used to have two pigs, two cattle, six turkeys, 12 hens and a polytunnel. And uh, so our five kids at home, they all had a different job helping out as well as they were growing up. So mm-hmm. it was a great way of actually giving them an idea of um, where the food came from. And also the benefit was the... Our food was all chemical free then and was natural and we never had touch wood any sickness with any of our children. Um, They all um, grew up fit and healthy and I put some of that down to the food they ate as they were growing up. So you you were in control of what your family ate. You knew what went into it. You knew that there wasn't anything harmful in it. But... Has traditional farming not evolved in the way that it has because we need to be able to scale these things up in order to feed more than the immediate family? Yeah, the problem is the overprocessed food. Uh, now, even if it's raised properly when it goes into the commodity system, um, the food gets overprocessed with if it's pork, nitrates, and if it's, um, say, sausages and burgers, they add fillers, cheap fillers to it to uh, bulk it up. They add water to it to bulk it up to try and keep the food cheap and also give it a longer shelf life for extended food miles. Mm. And the crazy thing is um, all that is actually uh, degrading our system and our our microbes and our um, health uh, for the sake of actually increasing the size of farms and stuff. So the future is not in large farms. It's actually in lots of small farms dotted all around the country producing nutrient-dense food, not just for their families, but for their local community. And like, and I talk about this all the time on on the show on Monday evenings, uh, like we are in a food insecure country, but we believe that we're secure and that's because we import so much into Ireland. So we do need, and I think it is accepted across the farming sector, that we do need to diversify what we're producing here in Ireland. So like, give us an idea of, like if I were to be on your farm now tomorrow morning, what would be noticeably different to a farm that I'd be used to looking at? What Describe it for us. Well, the first thing, uh, the first feedback I get from anybody who comes in, they ask me, where's your sheds? Where's your concrete? Where's your slatted tanks? All that kind of stuff. I have no infrastructure that way at all. What we have instead is 
movable infrastructure, which is small um, uh, arcs, say for your hen, um, for your pigs, and movable hen houses for for the poultry. Um, and in winter, our cattle are are housed actually in our pine forest. So our pine forest, they don't get any uh, nutrients from from the pine needles underneath. They, they, but they're a warm, dry bed for them to lie on. Then we give them organic hay. So we don't impose ourselves on the land. We're actually nestled into nature, and we kind of. Um, but we're still producing food and actually sequestering carbon while doing um, uh, while, while, while growing nutrient dense food. So your your animals are outdoors year round. All year round, yeah. Even in <laughs> even in the weather conditions that we have in this country. Yeah, well, we take our pigs and we build um, a outdoor wintering pad with wood chip as a base first, and then we put an ark in there as well for them so they can go in uh, from. Now hold from on, rain. you're going to have to explain this because when you say ark, I'm thinking Noah's ark. <laughs> so do, describe it for us now so we know what we're thinking of. It's a, a small pig house basically that you can move from like a, a big plastic diesel tank we'll, okay you know, we'll cut the end out of it and the pigs can go in and lie in that but you can, you can buy dedicated pig arcs as well uh, where you could maybe have four or five pigs in it in one at a time so the pig is like us it doesn't like to be get wet so so long as it has somewhere dry to lie down on but it also needs somewhere to root for its own mm-hmm. mental health as well as um, for building up the muscle mass of the pig to improve the quality of the meat. So uh, that's why we give them uh, um, an elevated um, wood chip pad that, that they can um, root in that and then go back in and lie down. And then all winter we add some waste hay, some waste silage, some waste straw and the pigs root all that up. They add their own waste to it as well. And then the following spring when we take the pigs out of there again and put them back on the land that wood chip pad is actually rich, dark uh, mulch. Uh, we sow potatoes in that and the places jump out of the ground from all the nutrients that the pigs left during the year. And after two years, you have about six or eight inches of rich, dark, humus topsoil that you can uh, grow anything in. So each year we move that pad uh, around, you know, to a different location. Mm-hmm. So we have different stages of mulch built up with the pigs doing all the rooting first. So does that then reduce the the labour costs and the, oh, yeah. the physical effort you have to put in? One of the big differences between our farm and, say, um, farming today is we use the animals' labour as part of the system. So whether it's the cattle and we do controlled poaching, depending on, on what's... On what, we want to do with the with the land with the pigs to control rooting with the hens it's uh, they're scratching and each one leaving their own waste behind as well uh, and they're all end hosts to each pathogens uh, you know so there's no pathogen build up of, of for worms with cattle or pigs or whatever because each one actually cleans out the other's um, impact okay, okay so that that means we don't have to dose them for for chemical uh, ivermectin or you know for uh, anything like that so by tweaking your system slightly you can actually work in harmony with nature rather than having to impose yourself and we should say this all meets standards and you are selling your meat into into restaurants around Ireland and you know it is it's it's safe for human consumption the way that you're doing this as well it's actually way safer than a pig stuck in a in a 
a piggery. Now, I'm not giving out about that. A lot of people do it, and it, it, it's. But the pig is under stress the whole time. It has. It, that's why it needs low levels of antibiotics the whole time to keep it keep it um, healthy or, mm-hmm. or, or keep mm-hmm. it from getting too sick. Um, but it's stressed as well. So that meat is full of cortisol, um, which for me that we actually picked that same we cortisol from the meat. Um, well, we I'll, know what cortisol does to the human body, exactly. so we can extrapolate from that so what it stress, might do to a, a, a poor pig, yeah. you know. So ours, our animals are stress-free the whole time. They're out in the fresh air. They don't get feet problems because they're not on concrete. They don't get respiratory problems because they're fresh air all the time. They, and because they're out the whole time as well, they, they grow a longer coat uh, in winter and they stay warmer and they have the shelter of the trees. So... It actually means that they're, um, it's way safer meat. I well, it sounds, quite frankly, idyllic and it's clearly working for you and, and the business that you're operating. I know the hope is to, to build it up as an open farm, but you've got an event coming up in Athlone next week, I believe. Yeah, well, every week uh, I do guest lecture in a different um, colleges and, and uh, like food on the edge uh, for chefs and stuff. But next Tuesday, um, I'm in Athlone um, as what is it, 10, uh, uh, it's 11 to 1, um, speaking to, uh, doing a cookery demonstration and speaking to students and, and alumni um, about nutrient-dense food, how it's grown, the possibilities of what it can do for the environment and for our health. And that was Brendan Guinan of Fear Via Farm, an agroforestry farm, speaking to me a little bit earlier. Let's Go Green, sponsored by Airgrid, managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future. Check out airgrid.ie for more. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. And I do hope that you have been enjoying our episode so far this week. Well... If you know me and you've listened to this show for quite some time, I love fashion and I love quirky fashion. I love being able to be an individual in what we wear. But if we want to be more environmentally friendly and sustainable in how we do things, we have to be a bit more creative. And that's where my next guest comes in. Jacinta Carraher runs Purple Peach and she joins us now all the way from County Monaghan. Jacinta, you are very welcome to Let's Go Green. Thank you, Ashleen, and thanks for having me. I'm flattered. So, Jacinta, talk me through what exactly is Purple Peach for people who haven't heard of you before. Okay, well, Purple Peach, um, I sort of felt I was filling a space where people like to get unusual pieces designed for events that they're going to, whether it be going to a wedding or going to an awards ceremony or a bride and to begin with, I wanted to be able to offer the alternative dress and for the alternative customer, um, you know, a contemporary sort of elegant bride who wanted something different. But that has sort of stemmed out into mothers of the bride, mothers of the groom, Debs. It doesn't really matter if, you know, if you're happy and you want to get something unusual made, I'm the place to go. Now, talk to me about that. And I know you're very interested in the whole sustainability area, but but just in Ireland, how common, how usual is it for us to go and have an outfit designed for us? You know, is are, are we interested? Is there a market there for it? Oh, yeah, there is a market, Ashley. It's a small market. It's a bespoke market. Um, I, I didn't imagine going into it that it was huge and it would be millions of people contacting me. I sort of want that unusual person who has 
a budget looking for a different thing to wear conscious of the environment now at this point of course as well and you know I sort of want that special special treatment it kind of yeah. you know everyone wants to be spoiled it's kind of like a spa treatment except you're coming to get your bespoke piece made I like to think of it like that anyway Ashley Now I know like I've I've had struggles over the years with my body and how I feel about my body and how I feel my body looks. And it can be getting an outfit for an occasion, male or female or non-binary. It can be a very stressful period if you're not comfortable with who you are. So, you know, talk to me then about like, you know, there's something about going into the high street and trying to find something that fits you can be really, really upsetting and really stressful. And I've been that teenager in particular in dressing rooms in absolute tears and mortified. So the idea then of being able to go into somebody and even just to have the privacy of saying, do you know what? I don't like this particular part of my body. Can you do something to hide that? Like it is a more um, intimate experience. Oh, without a doubt, Ashley. And you have the most unusual. You have people come and they have a scar somewhere they want to cover up, a tattoo that they stupidly got. And I mean, they say they're stupid. Mm-hmm, again. Not, mm-hmm. not me. But they're like, oh my God, I hate the scar and I have horrible memories attached to it and I do not want anyone seeing it. Or, you know, I'm sorry to say this, but I have yet to meet a woman who says, I love all of my body. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I haven't met that woman yet. So every woman comes in and says, I'm too small, I'm too tall. I hate my arms, I hate my ankles, I hate this, I hate that. And at the start, I think I tried to talk them out of that and say, well, I don't see an issue with that part of your body at all. I think you're paranoid. And then I realised there's no point in telling a woman she's paranoid about something. If you believe it in your heart and yeah. soul and you want to cover it up, I skip that stage now. I don't, it's not that I agree with you, but I just say, look, if that's your paranoid area, I'm not going to try and talk you out of it. I'd prefer to talk to you about what we can do to leave you happy, completely happy in your outfit and feeling like this works on me. And that's how the design happens. I don't, let's say for argument's sake, Ashley, you come in to me and said, design for me. I want something designed. I'm not one of those designers who arrogantly goes, I know what I'll put on you. I sort of go, well, Ashley, talk to me. Mm. What do you wear? What do you feel comfortable in? What's the colours you tend to go towards? What's the styles that you go towards? Why do you go to those styles? And how do you feel about your body? And what is your paranoid area that I need to know about? And when I have all that in mind, a shape starts coming into your head. And then I discuss fabric. I discuss styles. Um, How I start then is I make a mock of your dress first. So I never, ever go straight into your fabric. I make a mock of it in usually curtain lining, which is what we always used at college. It works perfectly. And then you get to see the shape of your dress on you before I make it, and which is fantastic because then you go, okay, well, in my head, I thought it would look like this. Can I change that? And then I'm looking at you going, right, in my mind, I thought this would work. But mm-hmm. now that I have it see it on you, I think we should change this. And then I'll, I'll draw onto the fabric. I'll cut off. I'll pin on. And none of us are thinking we're destroying our good fabric here because we're not. We're in the muck. So that really helps anybody who can't see the end stage. And they're going, well, I, I feel like I can't trust you because I can't see the end. And I'm like, yeah, but you have this brilliant middle section where we all agree. So it's fantastic. That's a brilliant system and it works really well, Ashley. And then talk to me about the environmental piece, because like in my corner of the media, we like I see all these pictures of closed mountains or or children in horrendous working conditions in far flung countries. And it's really hard to know 
where anybody can even start to tackle that particular problem. So how do you approach it from your own business? Yeah, well, actually, Ashley, that's a very well-worded question, I have to say, because where where I was coming from was um, making a decision that, okay, I grow organically, I've got kids, I'm really, really conscious of the environment, always have been. And it's only over the last few years I've realised what a, an impact my business and the fashion business in general has on the environment. So the first thing was taking responsibility for that. And as soon as you take responsibility for it, you know you're going to push a certain amount of customers away because as soon as you talk sustainability, people are like, oh, I just, uh, you know, sometimes you're thinking, I just want the handy thing. I don't want it. Mm-hmm. Or you're, you know, you're quiet and you're conscious down and you tell yourself why it doesn't matter or whatever your reason is. But where I came to it was, I said, I want to do the homework. I want to do the research. Um, I went back and did uh, post-grad and it was in relation to, you know, um, innovation and everything was to do with me trying to get more and more information about what's out there for me as a designer where are the suppliers like I was ringing my suppliers and was saying I want sustainable options I want you to give me really really valid sustainable options and they were like yeah but you know what nobody's really asking for that yeah but I am I'm asking (laughs) yes I am your customer and I am on the phone asking you so there you go you've got it so that was very frustrating. They're very, very slow now, very slow to change the ways. But so then I kind of bypassing them. And then I went to a huge fabric fair, which Leo helped me fund that trip. And um, I, I felt so um, empowered by going because there are suppliers out there, very hard to get your hands on them, but there are. And I've met up with a few, one in particular that I absolutely love to death. And what they're doing, how they're doing it is amazing. Now, my, the second level of the problem there, Ashley, for me is that the first thing people are saying to me, I mean, in general, if I'm speaking to someone in the street and they say, oh, I see you're doing something sustainable, sure, that's far more expensive, is it not? Yes. So that is the message I want to get out there is these fabrics are zero, no difference expense-wise, no difference. So they're coming in around the same ballpark as your silks and as all of the fabrics that I would usually deal with. Now, I do deal with high-end luxury fabrics, but they're coming in at the same place. So I'm going, no, they actually will not change the price of your dress. Plus one of the fabrics that is coming in, and it's not the perfect model, but it's fine for now. Because as you say about the closed mountains, the closed mountains are full of, let's say, your um, acetates and your, your um, let's say, really, really chemically made, created fabrics. So what they can do is they actually can be recycled really, really well. Mm-hmm. So they're recycling them. And because of that, I am getting in these fabrics that are, are those recycled uh, textiles, let's say. They look brand new. They are perfect colour. They, they look exactly the same. Now, on one hand, they're, they're still fake fabrics, if you want to call them that. They're not natural. But on the other hand, there is still the problem of all those fibres that are out there and they need to be reused. So I'm happy enough supporting that time until such time as, okay, they say, look, these closed mountains are coming down. There isn't the same amount of these fibres coming through. I would like to move over to everything natural. But in the meantime, it's a very good middle ground. And then those fabrics are, look, the identical same as, let's call them the evil fabrics, you know. So I'm saying to a customer, there's your satin that's been recycled and there's your satin that's a virgin satin, as they call it. And I'm like, why would you not choose this recycled one? It's all the same. They look the same. The price is the same. So it's not real. You know, you don't have to make as big a conscious decision as you think you have to make in that regard. 
But it's I mean, easier for me, Ashley, and I'm sitting with my customer showing them the company. I'm showing yes. them both fabrics and going, please choose this. Because but ultimately, if you're my customer and you choose the other one, I can't make you choose the sustainable one. You know? But I think like the way that you approach it is, or the way you can approach it because of the nature of your work, is what's needed. Like it's, you know, we go into high street shops and it's just a deluge of items. And sure, they might have recycled polyester on the label, but none of us know whether or not we can actually trust that to start with. Absolutely. And it's the trust issue that's a major problem. As yeah. Well, yes. And then I don't think in fairness to those who work in retail, like a lot of them are young college students or school yes. children. Yes. They don't oh, have yeah. the knowledge to answer customers' no. questions. And then the, the, we no. need to be more vocal as customers. Like it's very yep. much akin to, like for instance, we've got the local elections now coming up next summer. So we know we're going to have um, candidates from all parties, all political hues, knocking on our doors looking for our votes. And unless we actually ask them about what their opinions are on climate change or what they attempt to do it, they're not going to see it as something that's of interest to the public. Because like you were saying, the suppliers weren't hearing it from anybody else. So we, there's a responsibility on us, isn't there, to, to ask these questions. Absolutely. And I mean, you're, you're so completely right, Ashley. As they always say, it comes from the top down, but the pressure needs to come from the bottom up in relation to the politicians. So, I mean, let's call us at the bottom where we can't really make a decision individually on our own that's going to make a huge impact. Then, yes, we have to put our politicians under pressure. And I mean, the politicians hate calling to my house. <laughs> I don't <laughs> think don't they like calling to mine either. I'll be honest, well. Jacinta. No, no, no. Well, we, well, actually, we reel them in, they make them a nice cup of tea. And then Robbie, my husband, usually says, Don't come into the kitchen, Jay. The politicians are here. And I'm like, Let me into the kitchen. I need to talk to these people. They hate seeing me. But I'm a real straight talker. I'm not abusive or ignorant, but mm-hmm. I'm definitely. A straight talker, Ashley, and I have no problem pinning them to their collar and saying, what are you doing about this, this and this? Um, but you're 100% right. We all have to be putting that pressure on. And like, I understand you feel very guilty, or I feel guilty. Like, I don't buy anything new. I just don't buy anything new. And I Anything at all? No, nothing, nothing. No. Okay, underwear. Okay. <laughs> I'll right. allow for that. Okay, okay. okay. But um, otherwise, like, let's say clothes-wise, if I need something, I'm straight to the thrift shops, the charity shops, Depop, vintage, anything vintage. And then I'll also recycle up my own stuff. Now, okay, everyone's saying, well, sure, she can fix things and she can, you know, I can redesign something. I can pull something apart. I've seen the secondhand shop and I can say, well, if I take the top of that and put up with the skirt of that, you know, I know that I have the advantage of being able to do that. But I also believe if I'm not willing to live it, then I can't preach it. And yeah. I definitely, definitely live it. Any, anyone who knows me knows that everything I get is out of thrift shop. And even the, the going to the, we had the um, National Women's Enterprise Day on Thursday gone by and it was fantastic. But I knew I was speaking at it and I knew it was a big event. And for me, it was important because I wanted to get the sustainability message out there over, over any other message. So I decided to use that company that I had met at the fair that I love the fabric that they're creating. They're creating the fabric from those clothes mountains and they're making the most luxurious wool, recycled wool out of it. It is shocking how luxurious and high-end it is. And um, they sent me a piece of it to, to sample and I made a coat with it and um, it, it'll be on my, it's on my stories and my feed on Instagram. But if anyone wants to see it. But I mean, if you look at it, you would never, ever be able to tell me that that wasn't 
hugely expensive luxury brand new wool no one would be able I couldn't have told you it was recycled and for me that is somebody really hitting hitting the mark and it's not hugely expensive fabric it's exactly in the ballpark of your wools so you know I made a coat for myself which is actually the first time I've made myself something in quite a while actually but I wanted people to be able to see it you know and see convincingly what you can do and how you know how it can work that it doesn't have to look like I bought this rag in the second yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean I know I don't yeah. believe in getting rags now I mean I do have a rule when I go into second hand shops and there are some tricks and I don't know most people don't know them and I'm going to give them to them although I don't want it all flooding to the ones that I go to because that's going to spoil it for me but, um, go on be I generous though give us a few if, okay, because we be are generous, blessed in the generous. Midlands I should say now Jacinta in the Midlands uh, we are absolutely blessed with loads of charity shops and thrift shops across the Midlands but we do need a bit of help when because it can be a bit overwhelming when you go in and you're surrounded by stuff can. so, so okay. give us some advice well what I do is as soon as I go in uh, if, if I'm going through the rails I will ignore anything from Pennies or Dons or Sheen or um, H&M. Now, I'm not bitching about any of those companies, but for me, I'm going, I am not in here to buy crappy quality to be throwing it out. So that is no advantage to being in, in a charity shop. And just so for I am, um, my, my, my um, legal, um, none of us are saying any of those brands are crap. It's no. just that... You, no, 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 no. From no, your not, perspective, it's that. not what you're my looking perspective, for. My perspective, well, let me, I will say that the majority of those fabrics even, as soon as I feel them, I'm going... You know, that that is, is um, you know, a synthetic mm-hmm. fabric that I don't want on my skin, right? So I'm sort of going, I don't want that, I don't want that. So I have a bit of snobbery around what I will pick up from in the charity shops. Then the second big trick is, and I don't think I'm insulting anyone, if you go to any of the, you know, let's say the, the better off areas in, in either the town or in the, the country. Mm-hmm. So if I was going to Dublin, I might dip into either Malahide to the charity shops or Dunleary or one of those. And you end up with people that are better off are dropping in clothes and usually they're in better condition and they can be very, very high quality clothes in very good condition. So that is my trick. Like if you ever had to buy something to go and you're going to something, that's where you go. One of those really, you know, and you're yeah. still getting something for 15 quid that could have been 250 when it was bought. How... So, um like, I know, obviously, in secondary schools, and look, I didn't believe in certain 2004. It's almost 20 years since I didn't believe in certain, which terrifies me. Like, obviously, education has changed and all of that a little bit since then. Yeah. But, like, I came out, I did home economics for six weeks in first year and decided it wasn't for me and moved away from it. But I'm now, in hindsight, I look back and think, I'd love to be able to take in those trousers that have gotten a bit loose on me. Or I'd love to be able to take up a hem or make simple adjustments. Because every time I go to an alterations person, it's at least 20 euro, if not more. And I, and I do have an, an excellent lady that I go to in Tullamore that I, I, I trust with the best of clothing. But it, that's all an expense because I don't know how to do it myself. Should we be teaching young people from the off how to make those changes so that as an adult, they're more capable in being environmentally friendly but also budget friendly oh, without a shadow of a doubt Ashleen and you know something something really depressed me this year really depressed me um, my, my kids are all doing home ec and one of them came home and said to me mum would you know anybody that uh, would take like 15 sewing machines and I was like what and strangely I do know a man who's bringing stuff to a big big charity it's actually female you know female led charity in Africa and um, he was looking for stuff and had asked me a few times. So fabrics and different things. And I said to him, look, we'll, um, 
Uh, yeah, I said to her, I, I definitely know someone who would take the sewing machines. But I said, why 15 sewing machines? And she said, oh, my home ec teacher is trying to get rid of them. And I said, why is she trying to get rid of 15 sewing machines? She, she goes, oh, someone is now going off the curriculum for um, for home ec. No. So anyway, I don't know that officially, officially as such, but it but is from, going from your, your child's so school, not, it is. Yeah, but they're not teaching. I, I actually think for, for the whole curriculum of home ec everywhere. Now, it could be wrong, but um, I didn't research it, but I was so annoyed. I was just like, what, why are they stopping teaching so on? That's one of the most important parts of home ec in my mind. So I fully agree with Ashley. I think it actually should be a compulsory subject, and I think everyone should have to do it. Now, it should maybe be changed around a little bit, modernised a little bit, of mm. course. And I'm not saying force people into doing the subject there's no interest in them, but I did home ec the whole way through school and I insisted it was more life skills than anything else I learned. That's the thing, so yeah. I, I think it should be renamed as life skills. And, it should. Oh, you know, so it should just include do, when you hit 17, doing the driver's theory test. It should, you know, Correct like, and, and right. Correct how and right. to put a household yeah. budget together. Not worry about the global economic situation, but just Absolutely. individually how to put a household budget together. Jacinta, I think we're going to have to get you on the show again because I just, I've run right oh, out of time. Um, but um, yeah. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation how do Me my too. listeners find you if um, if they want to look you up on socials well my, my main social is purple peach design so it's at purple peach design on instagram i am on facebook as well jacinta carrer and purple peach so you've got your both um really on facebook it's purple peach as well but um they'd be my two main ones and my website as well so that's purplepeach.ie very simple and I didn't even get to ask you where you came up with the name, but I will do the next time around. Jacinta Carher, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on Ashley, this week's episode me. of Let's Go Green. Let's Go Green, sponsored by Airgrid, managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future. Check out airgrid.ie for more. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. And as you may know, this programme is brought to you each and every week with thanks to Airgrid, who are our official sponsors of Let's Go Green. And this coming week, Airgrid have a roadshow event taking place in Port Leash on the 26th. So that's this coming Thursday. It's an information event and the idea behind it is... The company is is hoping to let people know who attend. So you don't have to be from Leash to go. It's, it just happens to be taking place in Port Leash about how Airgrid plans to future-proof the electricity grid. ESB Networks will be there and they will be talking about its role in connecting micro-regeneration with the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland. So if you're interested, it's worth popping along to the Airgrid Energy Citizens Roadshow. It takes place this coming Thursday at the Midland. Park Hotel in Port Leash on Thursday evening from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. It's certainly worth investigating because I think, you know, it's all very well and good Googling, you know, what's available in your, in your locality or, or getting advice from different people. And that is important, you know, nothing against Google. Nothing beats coming up to an individual person who's an expert in the area and just asking the questions yourself directly and and finding out where you need to start and how you can help um, and how you might be able to assist in, in the work that is taking place. And another event that caught my eye that's happening in the next couple of days is a free online session from the Offaly Local Enterprise Office. So when I spoke to Jacinta Carher there earlier on, she mentioned that the lead 
CEO in Monaghan funded a trip or co-funded a trip for her to go and research sustainable fabrics. Well, Offaly Leo has an event. It's a free session on an introduction to the Lean and Green for Business programme and Energy Efficiency Grant. That information session is taking place this Wednesday from 1 to 2. It's an introduction to how it all works and you can register on the Leo Offaly's booking page on their website. So just search for Leo Offaly and you will get the, the local enterprise office um, website there and it's certainly worth considering if you are in business and you want to improve your practices and how you're doing things from an environmental standpoint but you don't know where to start and it's certainly something for my own business that I'm investigating at the moment but um, they are two events so one on Thursday the Airgrid event is Thursday evening in Port Leach from 6.30 and the Leo event is at one o'clock starting at one o'clock on Wednesday look up your local enterprise office there to find out I believe that one is taking place online so once again you don't necessarily have to be from Offaly to participate well I'm afraid we are right out of time for this week's episode of Let's Go Green. I do hope that you have enjoyed the show. There is a bank holiday next weekend, I believe. So that means we'll have a little bit of a break from Let's Go Green for a week. I hope you have an enjoyable Halloween if you do market or, or Samhain as we should be calling it. Um, but for now, stay safe, stay tuned and Stay listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. Let's Go Green, sponsored by Airgrid, managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future. Check out airgrid.ie for more.